It's Sunday morning, and Jed's parents are fighting again. This is the third day in a row that he's been awakened by his parents fighting. And it's time for him to get ready for church. He gets himself ready quietly, not wanting to anger his parents any more than they already are. And they fight all the way to church. He's gotten used to tuning it out, putting in his headphones and listening to his music. But there, in the pause of his music, Jed hears the word divorce. And they arrive at church just in time for the announcements to start. And the pastor begins by addressing the congregation in this way. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Jed scoffs and asks, what's good about today? His parents are on the verge of divorce. Amy and Ryan had been trying to get pregnant for years, and eight weeks into her pregnancy, something doesn't feel right. So she sees her doctor on Friday, only to find out that she had miscarried again. That was Friday. Today's Sunday. And she and Ryan are sitting in their pew just like every other Sunday. They sit in their pew silently mourning the life that they just found out had ended. And the service opens with the pastor's words, This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Neither Jed, Amy, or Ryan feel much like rejoicing today. They're in pain. And they start to question, why do we even go to church? The church isn't a place for them. It's a place for happy people, for happy times, for rejoicing not suffering. And the church often gets a bad rap for being fake or being inauthentic, which is unfortunate because God's word is neither of those things. It's real, it's raw, and it's authentic. And it gives voice to those who are suffering. It deals with suffering. God's word deals with everyday, ordinary life, the good, the bad, and the ugly. It's not a fairy tale. There are plenty of passages to prove it. This morning we're going to look at just one of those passages that deals with faith in suffering. Psalm 13 is one of them. David's life was certainly no fairy tale, but in the midst of all the ups and the downs, the Lord remained constant for him. He never changed. Listen to how David gives voice to his pain, how David pleads for help, but ultimately how David finds hope. I invite you to open your Bibles with me to Psalm chapter 13. And stand as I read verses 1 through 6. Psalm chapter 13, beginning at verse 1. Again, reading in Jesus' name. For the choir director, a psalm of David. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart all the day? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Enlighten my eyes, or I will sleep the sleep of death, and my enemy will say I have overcome him, and my adversaries will rejoice when I am shaken. But I have trusted in your loving kindness. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, because he has dealt bountifully with me. Father God, these are your words. Your word is truth. Your word is real. Your word works in our lives and in our hearts. We pray, Father, that your word would do that here this morning in our, in our lives, in our hearts, in our minds, in our souls, and in our midst. We pray, Lord, for all of those who are suffering today, too, that they would hear your word this morning, that they would know that you are a God who still cares for them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. David, as you are well aware, is no stranger to suffering. 
He was well acquainted with grief. He was the youngest of his brothers, the runt of the litter. Any younger brothers out there understand what kind of grief that might bring, being the runt. I'm sure he received his fair share of grief from his older brothers. And one day when the prophet Samuel comes into his hometown, Samuel invites his father Jesse and all of his sons to join him at a sacrifice. And so Jesse and his sons join the prophet at the sacrifice. All of his sons, except David. Wasn't he a son enough to go? Was his dad embarrassed by him or ashamed of him? Was his dad just not claiming him? We aren't told. We're only told that Jesse was told to bring his sons to the sacrifice, and for whatever reason, he leaves David behind. Something happened that day, though, that would forever mark David as a marked man. He was anointed by the prophet Samuel to be the Lord's anointed. That David that day was set apart to be the replacement of the current king of Israel, the one with the anger issues that he'd faithfully served, the one that he would eventually be asked to soothe with his beautiful music, the one who would throw spears at him. David, again, faithfully served his king, even in the midst of Saul's fragile ego, until it became clear that Saul wanted David dead. He no longer wanted him around. He no longer deemed David worthy of life. David was a fugitive and a man on the run. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Where was the Lord in all of this? David himself feels rejected and abandoned, and not just once in his life, but numerous times. David himself here is unwanted. David suffering innocently. It wasn't because of anything that he has done, but he is suffering here, and he cries out to the Lord, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Not all of David's suffering was innocent, though. Some of it he had brought on himself. He suffered due to his own sins. His affair with Bathsheba is no secret. We know about that. And maybe even you've heard Sunday school stories or lessons about that. And neither was having her husband murdered. The sin caught up with David. And the prophet Nathan comes to David and accuses him and reminds him of his sin. He confronts him. And as he confronts David, he tells him of one of the consequences of his actions. The prophet says this, Because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born to you shall surely die. David fasted and he prayed, asking for God's mercy, asking for God's grace, asking for his son to be allowed to live. But that son still died. The death of a tiny infant, the death of all the hopes and dreams for his son, gone just like that. How long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I endure your wrath? David repeatedly asks that same question, verses 1 and 2. How long? How long? How long? How long? And you begin to feel the desperation of David, one who is abandoned, one who is forgotten, one who is not living his best life, one who is enduring the wrath of God. The Lord's face is no longer shining graciously upon him, no longer giving him peace. Instead, it seems that God has hidden his face from him. 
as though God's grace has dried up and judgment instead has come. How long, O Lord? How long will I remain under your judgment? How long am I supposed to suffer? How long until you make things right? How long, until, how long are you going to let my enemy prevail over me? When will it end, Lord? It's time for you to do something. Have you ever been to that place? Have you ever found yourself in a place where you're convinced that the goodness of God simply cannot be? Have you ever found yourself wondering when God was going to act, when God was finally going to remember you and act on your behalf, when God would once again shine his face upon you and be gracious unto you. In seasons of suffering, in periods of pain, we wonder often, where's God? Because he certainly can't be here. If you've ever been there, you aren't alone. This is a position, this is the place where David writes this psalm. And David also isn't the only one who has been there. Jesus himself has been there too. Remember the words that Jesus said when he was nailed to the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where was God's goodness that day when an innocent man is dying on the cross? There was a reason why Jesus was forsaken. There was a reason why, Jesus, why God the Father turns his face away from his son suffering on the cross. Because in that moment... This innocent man was no longer innocent, but he became sin, taking on himself the sin of the world. The very one in whom the fullness of God dwelt in bodily form. The very one who from the very beginning was united intimately with the Father. Is for the first time in all eternity forsaken of his Father. Paying for sin that he didn't even commit. And there on that cross 2,000 years ago, the Son of God suffered. The Father turned his face away from Jesus. Where was the goodness of God then? Going back to our text in verses 3 through 4, something changes in David. David changes his tunes a little bit, and, and he gets a little bit feisty here. He's at the end of his rope. He says this, consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Enlighten my eyes or I will sleep the sleep of death and my enemy will say, I have overcome him. And my adversaries will rejoice when I am shaken. David isn't asking questions anymore. He's beyond that. It's beyond the time of asking questions. Instead, we see him here making demands of God. Consider me. Answer me, O Lord. And David declares that if God doesn't answer that if God doesn't take action right now in this moment, that he is going to die a disrupted and restless death. A death in which there is no resting in peace. A death in which there is no blessed end. There is no graciously taking him from this world of sorrow to himself in heaven. David's desperation stems from his enemy overcoming and rejoicing over him. Hidden inside this plea that David makes, this demand of God that David makes, is an assumption that David makes about the Lord. And it's a pretty bold assumption. He brings his problems to the Lord as if the Lord cares. 
He speaks to God as if God cares, as if he, little David, matters in God's sight. Again, that's a pretty bold assumption to make about God. Why should God care about him? Why should God hear him out, this guilty sinner? Why should God deliver him? David is just one out of millions of people or however many people were walking the earth 3,000 years ago. Any other God would tell him to suck it up and deal with it. Any other religion would say, David, you've got problems in your life, that's true, but you've got to make yourself right before you can come and approach to me, before you can expect any favors from me. You've got to make yourself pleasing and acceptable to God before he or she will listen to what you have to say. That's what the other religions of the world will say, what they all say. There's something different about the Lord, though. There's something that separates him from all the other gods people worship. And David knows that. David knows the Lord. He knows that the Lord was different than all the other gods that he could have ran to. He knew that the Lord cared for him. In Psalm 8, he writes earlier, What is man that you take thought of him, and the son of man that you care for him? In this psalm, David is, is talking about the magnificent, mighty deeds that God has done, that he is a creator of the universe, of all things. And David says, and yet, you still care for me. You shouldn't care about me, but you do. David knows the Lord. David knew that he was fearfully and wonderfully made, intimately crafted together by the very hands of his Savior. He knew his creator's precious thoughts toward him, he wasn't just a random chance or an accident. He isn't an afterthought. That even though his life might not matter in Saul's sight, even though he's forgotten by his own father and even brothers, David knows that his life matters, that he mattered. He isn't just assuming that the Lord cares. No, he knows that the Lord is a God who cares. One of the amazing things in the Old Testament is just how much they knew about Jesus. David was the one who wrote Psalm 22. If you flip open to your Bibles there and, and you read that psalm sometime, and I encourage you to do that today. But in this psalm, this is a psalm that Jesus quotes as he quite literally fulfills this psalm on the cross. It begins with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The very words of Christ on the cross as he's being crucified. Beginning with his assertion that God has forsaken him, Jesus' death is portrayed vividly. In verse 19, he too makes demands of his father. But you, O Lord, be not far off. O, my, o you, my help, hasten to my assistance. Deliver my soul from the sword, my only life from the power of the dog. Save me from this lion's mouth. And as Jesus quotes this psalm and his disciples are replaying this psalm in their, feet, in their heads at the feet of Christ as he is crucified, it seemed there in that moment that God had not answered his prayers. It seemed there in that moment that Christ's death was the end, that God had indeed forsaken him, that he would not be delivered. And living on this side of the crucifixion, we know what's happened. God raised him up again. But David, too, also knows that this isn't the end. Listen to what he writes in verses 22 through 24. I will tell of your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. 
You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you descendants of Israel, for he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him for help, he heard. As Jesus is crucified and, and dying there on that cross, these are the words that come to mind. These are the words that the psalmist says that what Jesus would be praying, saying, I know that I will still tell of your name to my brethren, that even though I die here today on this cross, this is not the end. That God has not hidden his face from the one who is suffering, from the afflicted, but God hears and God has heard. He has not despised and abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face. Rather, he has heard their cries. And there, that innocent man on the cross is a very answer to those prayers. That innocent man where we wonder, where is the goodness of God? The goodness of God is there in the fact that Christ is suffering for your sin. That there, nailed to the cross, is your sin, is your punishment. There, on the cross, is God forsaking you for your sin. As he forsakes his one and only son for you, so that never again will he ever have to forsake you, no matter what suffering you're going through, no matter what sin you are still wrestling with, Christ is present with you. And the death and the resurrection of Jesus is a glorious truth that gives context to Psalm 13, that gives context to all of scripture, that gives context to all of life, to every life. Psalm 22 ends with these words, he has performed it, which could also be translated, it is finished. The last words Jesus said on the cross. Let's look at the last two verses here. As we look at these last two verses and as we, we think about what did David know of his Savior. What all could David know as we just looked at Psalm 22, just a glimpse of the many passages in Scripture that speak of who Christ is and what Christ would do. We see how they give a context to David's suffering. We see how they give context to David's demands of God. Verses 5 and 6, but I have trusted in your loving kindness. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. As David is here crying out in agony to the Lord, he makes his request known. Not as though he's sending up a prayer like a buzzer shot at the last minute of a game, but he's confidently praying to the one who has already dealt bountifully with him. Notice the tense that David uses here. He says that he has placed his trust in the Lord. He's placed his trust in his loving kindness. I have trusted in your loving kindness. And he continues to trust the Lord's steadfast love. And this trust is a confidence that clings to God. Specifically here, a confidence that is clinging to the consistent, ever faithful, relentless, constantly pursuing, lavish, extravagant, furious love of God. To quote Pastor Lee, that's what that little word means, loving kindness or steadfast love or covenant faithfulness, however it's translated there in your Bible. And it's this very love of God that led the Lord to deal bountifully with David. As God knew that there on the cross one day, Christ 
would pay for David's sin. And it was this love of God that moved Samuel to seek David out, even when his dad left him at home. It's this love of God that spared David of his life when King Saul tried to kill him and tried to have him murdered. It was this love of God that permitted David the day of grace to repent of his sin after stealing another man's wife and having him killed. And it was this love of God that provided another son for David when his other son had died, that son of iniquity, that son that was a result of his adultery. It was this love of God that again protected his life as his son would try to kill him later on. But this love of God was made more sure in the promise given long ago, in the promise of a Savior, the promise of one who would come to be the sacrifice for sin, the promise of atonement, the promise of salvation. David had seen some of the Lord's bountiful love in the past experiences of his life and the way that he graciously gave him each and every new day that he experienced but he would one day experience it fully. David's trust extended out beyond into the future, beyond even his own earthly life. It looked ahead to the arrival of the Savior, to the assurance of the forgiveness of sins, to the deliverance from his, this body of death, to the ultimate victory over all of his enemies, not just Saul, not just his son, not just the Philistines, but the enemy of sin itself, the enemy of the devil, and the enemy of his own sinful nature, which was still very much alive and well in his own heart. David's heart rejoiced in the crucified and risen Lord Jesus Christ who was to come, and he hoped for the resurrection. David didn't live to see the day of Christ, but he still knew the Lord. He wrote about Jesus, he wrote about what he would do, and David trusted his Savior and it was because of this Savior that David was free to sing in the midst of his suffering here. As he says, I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with him. We don't get to sing to the Lord just because God spared us from harm just one time. Sure, we can do it in that moment and in that day. But there's more danger. There's more harm. There's more evil that exists in this world. And one day we too will breathe our last breath unless Christ comes back first. And as we succumb to that enemy, that enemy called death, and as we go through all of the situations that are wrapped up with that, the funeral service, the embalming of our bodies, or however they're disposed, the burying of our body and the tombstone that's set up to say, this was a person who lived, but this person has died. At that moment, the way that Christ has rescued us from harm just once in our life isn't going to mean much. But the fact that Jesus Christ has died for our sins and that our sin has been atoned for and the fact that Jesus Christ is the firstborn from the dead who has risen again and that in our baptisms we are baptized into the death of Christ but also raised to newness of life that as Christ's body was raised from the grave, so too will our bodies be raised from the grave. And this is the hope that allows us to sing in the suffering that we endure in this life. This is the hope that we cling to in all situations of our lives, 
This is the hope. This is the context in which we find ourselves living in the daily monotony, everyday moments of life. That one day Christ will return and bring us home to live with him forever. And so we too, we who trust in the loving kindness of the Lord, our hearts also will rejoice in his salvation. And we too are free to sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. In the past 2,000 years ago, each and every day of our lives, and that final day when he calls us to be with himself in heaven for all eternity. Let us rejoice and let us endure this suffering with the eyes of faith, calling out to God, asking God, God, how long? How much longer must we endure the suffering in this world? But also knowing that God has heard us, that he does consider us, that he does answer, and he has answered us in Christ. And let us look back to the cross. Let us see Christ suffering for us in our place. Let us also know that Christ is here with us now. And one day Christ, too, will deliver us to our final home. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you and we praise you for your word and its truth. We thank you, Lord, that your word gives a voice to those who are suffering, that you hear us as we suffer in our lives. Lord, that you hear those who are being persecuted for their faith around the world even now, that you have heard their prayers and that you have answered them. Lord, that you hear those who pray, forgive me of my sin, that you have heard and you have answered and you have dealt bountifully with us in Christ as there on that cross 2,000 years ago, an innocent man died a guilty death for me. Lord, we pray that you would give us the eyes of faith to see the many ways that you have dealt bountifully with us each and every day of our lives. And Lord, that you would allow your word to give context to our everyday lives and every moment of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.